and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. This event was graciously funded by the East Brunswick Friends of the Library. To learn more about the Friends or make a donation, visit ebpl.org forward slash friends. Now, enjoy the program. Option Green, Climate Change and Community is presented by the East Brunswick Public Library and the Friends of the East Brunswick Environmental Commission. Funding is provided by the American Library Association's Resilient Communities, Libraries Respond to Climate Change, and the East Brunswick Friends of the Library. Thank you to all of the public libraries who are our community partners. For more information about Option Green, visit ebpl.org forward slash option green. Good evening, everyone. I hope you are able to hear me. My name is Melissa Hosick, and I'm the adult programming librarian at the East Brunswick Public Library. Thank you for coming out for our second lecture in the Option Green Climate Change and Community Series. Um, so uh, just a few things. Um, I have put a link in the comments for access to the captioning. For those who will be watching it on replay later on YouTube in the next few days, we will have captioning on that video as well. Um, so just a few things. There's pretty much it. So I'm going to introduce tonight's presenter. Um, Tate Cherenji holds a PhD in trace metal biogeochemistry from the University of Florida, a Master of Science in Earth Science from the University of Gulf, and a BS from the University of Zimbabwe. Besides lots of many things that he does, he, we're talking tonight about how he teaches and engages students in the international sustainable development projects in Zimbabwe, Ecuador, and Brazil. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, as Melissa mentioned, I'm a professor at Stockton University and uh, I've been there 17 years. I can't believe it's been 17 years already. I'm going to talk to you about some of the projects that I work on uh, at Stockton, mostly uh, in the program that I run on international sustainable development. And uh, the outline of my talk, I'm going to spend a little bit of time just talking about the problem that got us to where we are giving, we are working on these projects uh, in Ecuador, Zimbabwe, Panama, Costa Rica. We have so many sites that we work in, uh, although tonight's uh, presentation is focused most on Zimbabwe. <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I'm sorry, sorry. And then uh, after that, I'm going to go and uh, discuss some of the things that we did specifically in Zimbabwe, uh, where we went on a listening tour to find out what was happening there. And then uh, we established a uh, base where we, uh, where we were based pretty much for everything that we did. And then some of the projects that we uh, worked on uh, through the years. So in the 17 years that I've been doing this, uh, there's one thing that I've noticed that uh, it doesn't matter how how specific or how small a project is, a specific project that you're working on, uh, how, how tiny it is. It doesn't really matter uh, 
if you are going to make any headway in addressing it, you need to take a step back and figure out, okay, if it's an environmental problem, who else is affected? What are, who are the stakeholders? And who are the people who are involved? How does it affect people who actually make a living or benefit from this particular activity? Uh, and then uh, it's the only way that you can actually uh, address it in a way that is uh, a long lasting or sustainable. So you have to, uh, at least in our field, you have to pretty much uh, incorporate the triple bottom line. Uh, you have to look at who is involved, the people, uh, who is making money out of it, and how do people, are there people who actually make a living out of this project, this particular issue, and then how does it affect the environment? So with that in mind, uh, you see that um, when it comes to climate change, for example, in Zimbabwe, uh, we all know uh, it, the usual suspects, right? Uh, carbon dioxide uh, emissions are getting higher and higher. Of course, there are other gases that are involved. Uh, uh, methane, nitrous oxide, sulfur hexafluoride, ozone, CFCs, and all these others. And we know the activities that are leading to the release of these gases. Transportation, deforestation, land use changes, waste disposal, uh, and the correlation, and this correlation has been discussed many, many times in the um, impact of anthropogenic emissions on changing temperature. Here's the problem though that we're seeing that uh, a lot of us right now who are watching this are uh, in, in a developed country. Uh, and if you look at the 80 million, 80 trillion dollar global economy, you look at the big players, the people who are driving it. Uh, they are the same people who also are emitting a lot of the emissions that are causing problems. There's only, I looked really hard on this earlier, and I only saw two African countries that actually made it to this chart that were emitting enough to make it to this chart. Uh, same deal, when you look at carbon dioxide emissions, it's the same pattern. The people who have the highest standards of living are the ones who are also emitting a lot. And this is not to blame anyone, uh, but the issue is uh, those who have a high standard of living are also going to be the ones who are more resilient to the impact of climate change. Uh, so when you look at um, for example, when I moved from Zimbabwe to the United States, and I, I, I share this and talk to my students about it, we laugh about this all the time because it's something that um, that is just a word, it's not a laughing matter, but when you look at just the impact of my moving from one small country, Zimbabwe, and moving to Canada and then moving to the United States, when I do this as a Zimbabwean living in a a uh, small house with many people when we go down there to do research. Uh, my impact uh, would be about, it, it, it would tell me that my footprint is so much is smaller that uh, if, I, if everyone lived like me, we would need about one planet to survive. But being here in the United States, and I, and I have to admit, I'm one of those people who travel more than the average person uh, and ironically, we are traveling uh, to talk about sustainability, to do sustainability proje uh, projects. Uh, but it's telling me that I, if everyone lived like me, we would need about seven and a half uh, planets, which means um, that uh, if 
we, we can't keep up this lifestyle. The lifestyle that I'm living is way over what the Earth, uh, the Earth systems can support. Uh, the, the situation is a little different when you go to other countries. But in the United States, we can afford. Climate change is being felt here also, but we can afford because when you look at these uh, changes in sea level and the impacts that are happening with uh, climate change, we can afford actually to bury our heads in the sand because our systems are built in a resilient way. And that's not to discount. I know most many people uh, probably in this uh, broadcast were also affected by Hurricane Sandy. But look at how fast, how quickly we recovered from that. Uh, and then compare to what happens in third world countries when a storm uh, passes through town. Here, my, my girlfriend used to, my uh, then girlfriend, who is now my wife, used to live in uh, Margate. Uh, and there will be uh, a flash, a, a, a flood uh, one weekend, and uh, it will be like uh, maybe close to a knee deep in water uh, due to a king tide. When you go back a week later, it's like nothing happened. If that happens in a lot of third world countries, it takes years to recover to, uh, from those things. And it's, it's just amazing when you look at, for example, in Zimbabwe, um, the projected changes that are going to happen due to climate change. When you look at temperature, projected temperature changes from the extreme end uh, to the, um, and the level that you see here at the bottom is if we make drastic changes uh, to reduce emissions. And we know this is not happening. So the chances, chances are it's going to be somewhere along this uh, range here. Same thing with changing precipitation. If you just compare with what has happened in the last 20 years, 20 or 30 years, uh, and use that as a, as, this, as a mean, as the base, and then look at uh, what is the projected change. Uh, so the, uh, the change that's going to happen, which will be a deviation from what you'd expect. You see that as far as temperatures are concerned, temperatures could go up as high as almost five degrees uh, by the end of this century, and precipitation is going down. But this doesn't tell the whole story. Because if you look, for example, uh, what's happening right now in New Jersey with, uh, with snow, uh, if, you, uh, if you look at the snow totals for this uh, winter uh, and you don't consider the fact that we got three back-to-back-to-back -back -back storms that dumped for some of you maybe six inches, then eight inches and 20 inches over a period of one week. Uh, and if you are looking at an average at the end of the season, for example, and you see that New Jersey got maybe 28 inches or 30 inches of snow, if you don't consider that two thirds of it maybe came over one weekend, then you don't have the whole story. And so some of these numbers don't tell that whole story because what we've been noticing in Zimbabwe is that uh, not only are the totals going down, but sometimes you get the whole season of rainfall within two weeks and then nothing. Or you get uh, the rain has patterns and it has its own rhythms that people are adapting uh, to during their, uh, pretty much during their whole lives. They know uh, we plant corn during the last weekend in October and we're supposed to be harvesting sometime uh, in April or in May, whenever they're going to be harvesting. And they know that there's this first rain that comes, it has a name, 
and there are rituals associated with this particular rain. Uh, and yet, over the last 40 years, these things have been changing so much that it just doesn't make sense, even those rituals don't make sense anymore. Uh, so um, the changes are just really drastic. So numbers by themselves don't really tell the story unless you look at the pattern throughout the whole season. Uh, and if you look at uh, the uh, cost of some of the disasters that have happened uh, over the last century and compared to what's happening, it's kind of scarier to tell you the truth. Now, these photos that we're looking at um, are photos that's just uh, from events in the last three weeks. There was a flood that went through Southern Africa and every photo that you see on your screen right now is coming from uh, what uh, was experienced in either South Africa, Zimbabwe, or Mozambique. Many people that we have talked to who are in their 80s, 90s, even someone who was 104 years old, my, my grandmother is 104 years old, uh, she saw a first uh, flood this year, 2021, first flood uh, in their neighborhood. Uh, there are a lot of other people in their 90s who have never experienced a flood. Uh, in their whole life and they're experiencing it now. And I'm going to come back to these photos later, but these photos are actually coming from our site. This is the uh, project base that we use in Zimbabwe. Uh, when I take students to go to Zimbabwe and I want to point to this right now so you can just see that uh, this is a basement and this is a full six foot, it's actually about 6.8, a six in a six feet, a six foot eight uh, inch uh, tall uh, doorway that is flooded almost to the top. And this is a fish pond. Uh, this is these are mushroom sheds. Uh, and this area is all completely flooded. This kid is actually standing on what was generally considered high ground. And one thing that's happening that is kind of weird uh, when you get these situations, uh, I'm, I'm an immigrant here in the United States. I've been here for, uh, over 20 years now. Uh, and although I love living here, um, I, I my first choice would have been to live in my own uh, home country. That's where I grew up. That's where all my friends are. That's where my family is. And when you see people suddenly decide that I'm just going to live uh, where I grew up, where my whole life has been attached and I'm just up and leave and go somewhere else, usually it takes something drastic. Sometimes they are living and they are moving from areas that are affected and they're going into towns or they are going into neighboring countries. But there's been a trend that is really interesting that has been happening recently. Uh, they are moving, if you remember the graphs that I showed you earlier, the countries that, are, that have the highest standards of living, that's where everyone is migrating. And wherever people are affected, actually, other arrows, the other uh, graphics that show arrows also coming from South America, they are going to uh, the countries that are doing really well. Uh, and that's not a long-lasting solution. It's not a sustainable solution. Everyone is not going to be able to move into, and not everyone wants to move up, to just up and live uh, where they grew up and where they've been for the last 40, 60, 70, or even 20 years. There are a lot of other people who are younger who are not, who are not, up, they just don't want to live. So how do we address this issue? So this, uh, we could try to reduce emissions. Uh, some could argue that uh, that horse has already left the barn. So maybe work on resiliency. 
uh, try to make the systems that we have in place resilient so that people are not affected as much by climate change. Uh, or we can adapt, right? Adapt to the new normal of climate change, just like we are trying to adapt now to the new normal of COVID. Uh, and each one of those approaches is benefits and disadvantages. For us, we want to make sure that people can adapt in Zimbabwe to what they are doing. So before I go into uh, what we are doing in Zimbabwe, I just wanted to show you the background, the background against which we are doing, we are working on these projects. Usually when we go to a lot of uh, other places, we love to go to Central America and South America because it's closer to us and uh, the people in those systems uh, build capacities that can um, handle uh, um, students and researchers coming from uh, this part of the world uh, and they are in a better place, at least for us to go and work with them. But one of the things that I've noticed over the years also is that a lot of the projects that we are working on, yes, it's something that I'm interested in. It's something that my students are also interested in. But usually it's the people who have money, whether it's a foreign donor who is based in the United States or if we're in Ecuador, it's the Europeans, uh, whether it's the Belgians or the Germans in the Galapagos Islands, they have very specific things that they want to study there that they want to promote and that's where they put the money and so when the locals have a very specific thing that they're interested in if no one is willing to put money in it um it's not going to happen and we see this over and over whether we're in brazil in the in amazonia or uh whether in the pantanal or whether in, in ecuador like i just mentioned uh in the galapagos or in the andes or in Panama, uh, we have a station where we work uh, in Panama called the Batipa station. It's always someone dictating uh, what uh, they are interested in and that's where you end up working on. So when we went to Zimbabwe, we wanted to try something different. We wanted to just go in and then maybe listen to what uh, the people were affected um, by all these changes in climate change uh, uh, or people who are just, who, you don't have to argue, you don't have to debate the issue of climate change with folks in rural Zimbabwe, because they have seen that the crops that they grow, that they grew up uh, growing, really every season after season, corn, soybean, uh, groundnuts, uh, uh, some either potatoes or some other crop, now they know that uh, when they when they are uh, sowing those seeds in the ground, if there's no guarantee uh, on the other side that they're going to get anything. Uh, they could pray, they could wish for the best, but it's not happening, uh, and it's becoming uh, it's getting worse and worse this time. So we wanted to hear what do they have, uh, what is it that they uh, is a challenge to them. So if you are wondering, if you've been wondering up to now, where where the hell is in Zimbabwe? Uh, Zimbabwe is in Southern Africa. So this is Africa. Uh, South Africa is right here. Zimbabwe is a tiny country. Well, it's tiny compared to other countries, but uh, it's about 17 times the size of New Jersey. So it's really big, but its population is less than double that of New Jersey. When you think in terms of the United States, it's about 25 times smaller than the United States. Uh, and, uh, and this population is about 20 times smaller. So in terms of density, Zimbabwe is a lot less densely populated than New Jersey, but it's a little uh, its density is a little higher than uh, the population of uh, uh, 
the United States, uh, its, its density is higher than that of the United States, but just a little bit higher. Uh, and of course, when we go, uh, this is the capital Harare, and our projects are based here. This is my rural home. So I have an advantage, I have a, a home field advantage in Zimbabwe. I speak the uh, language. Uh, I grew up there. I understand the customs. I understand a lot of uh, things that other people coming from abroad uh, don't. So um, we, when we sat down with, uh, we, we went with uh, various stakeholders. We had a list of more than 20 different stakeholders that we engaged on this. And uh, we wanted to identify what the main problems were because uh, all of us or most of us on this uh, broadcast know that uh, the big, one of the biggest failures of uh, aid in the past has been that people from abroad would define what they think is important for the people who are living in certain areas. It could be in Africa, it could be in South America, it could be in East Asia, wherever it is. And sometimes those interests don't coincide with what's interesting or what's important for the locals in that area. And what ends up happening is that the locals, if they feel like their voices are not being heard, uh, heard what they do is they just accept the money, spend it on other things, and just uh, move on with their lives. And they don't walk away thinking, well, I was dealing with these idiots. They won't listen. They won't do what's good for them. And both sides will feel like, will, will not feel, uh, any, will not get any benefit from that interaction. Uh, so one of the things that we wanted to really change, uh, and this really also coincides with uh, donor uh, fatigue, Right. There are some organizations that have been pumping money into these areas, uh, telling people, do this and your life will improve. And those people don't do it for one reason or another. Maybe because it doesn't work. Maybe they don't want to do those things. And, uh, and so there are so many different uh, iterations uh, that you can go through when trying to understand why these projects just don't work. We didn't want to repeat that. So we went... I went with my colleague here, Patrick Hussey in political science, and all we did was just bring a tablet uh, and take down notes. And it, we had some really interesting uh, conversations with people. And the one thing that was clear everywhere we went was that drought and climate change just increased temperatures and just unreliable, like just uh, um, growing seasons that were not producing what people were used to getting uh, was the constant theme everywhere we went. So uh, one, uh, one thing that we quickly learned uh, early on was that it was going to be really difficult to work in Zimbabwe and come in and try to spend three weeks, four weeks, sometimes six weeks we have spent, sometimes eight weeks actually in Zimbabwe and not have a real base. So I told you I grew up in Zimbabwe, so we bought a piece of land. Uh, it's about six and a half acres. We have another three acres somewhere else. Uh, what you see here uh, is this house here. Uh, and um, after discussing uh, with uh, stakeholders, be it teachers, be it village herds, be it uh, politicians, uh, we came up with a matrix of things that we think need to be done before we even get going. And some of it included capacity building. Uh, and so uh, we all agreed that we needed something that would improve security, food security going forward, our water supply, 
uh, education, uh, a lot of things that we ourselves were not able to uh, to provide, but we knew the people we're talking to uh, felt like they had never had uh, too many people come to them to actually just listen to hear what it is that they would want to uh, to get so that they are uh, to improve their lives. And they, they made it clear that they didn't want uh, just they just didn't want handouts. They wanted they, these are proud people who. Uh, one who work really hard and want to uh, be able to support themselves. So we established our base. So I got this land. I, I spent so, so my, my own money and we built a, a, a house, which is five bedrooms. And this is the house where that basement that I just showed you, the flooded basement. Uh, so in this corner here, it's in this corner here. Uh, and this only happened two weeks ago, by the way, the flooding. Uh, and uh, then we have an office and enough room there for uh, uh, students and visitors uh, to uh, stay when they come in. And then, of course, one thing that <coughs> excuse me, one thing that we discovered very quickly, even when we were doing the listening tour, was that um, when we were when we would make plans with people, to meet with people, uh, sometimes there'll be miscommunication, not because they were ignoring what we were telling them, but because they just, their phones were not charged, the network was bad. Uh, there was, uh, usually it came down to our phones, we didn't have any charge. And their kids, they would send their kids to the store, to the shops where they would uh, pay to get a cell phone charged or to get, um, anything that they wanted uh, to get power, and whether it's a tablet, whatever it is that they're using. But the one thing that really stood up, and for me, it's a personal thing, because my mom uh, died from kidney failure, from complications, from diabetes. Uh, this little thing here that you see here, uh, this is a glucose meter. I may not be clear from the screen, but it's a glucose meter. Zimbabwe, just like many parts of the world, is just devastated by uh, diabetes too. Uh, type 2 diabetes is just uh, it is taking a hold in a way that is just mind-boggling, really. And so a lot of the people just, they're struggling just every day to get uh, power to power to, to charge these little things so they can test their blood sugar. So our first project, really, we had to find a way to uh, help uh, these, uh, these uh, guys find a way to uh, charge their phones and charge these uh, instruments. Luckily, in Zimbabwe, because of subsidies and because of things that come from international agreements, solar power, solar is much cheaper than uh, many places. And you can get like a solar panel, it's really a dollar a watt. Uh, you can get, so one of the things that we started off, we actually had three students work on an independent study that shows how to set up uh, your solar panel uh, to a uh, charge controller, uh, to a charge controller, and then your inverter, and then how to control the whole system about DC and AC, and then uh, just being able to scale it up. We had to set it up ourselves and, and show them how to scale it up in different scenarios. Uh, if you are thinking, well, this would be too expensive for rural people, it's not, because they're spending a lot more on oil, uh, on uh, candles, uh, and then paying people in like every day they would take their people uh, 
people who are making a business out of this that we charge cell phones and they are paying like this cell this uh this whole setup here uh, they would pay for this setup two times over in a year really uh, from the amount of money they are spending to charge their um uh, their equipment so <coughs> so we decided that that was the first project that we're going to work on and we'll show them uh, how it actually benefits them and uh, people then started adapting it for even small pumps that they would use in wells uh, reducing the amount of uh, uh, time it would take uh, young girls to go and fetch water from faraway places and then all these other kids will be going will be walking miles a day just to get a glucose meter charged uh, now he had suddenly had a lot of time on their hands and because this is something that we also needed, uh, remember this is in rural Zimbabwe, uh, we also set up a big system for those who are interested to see how it would work on a much larger scale. And some of my students for water heating set up a system. These are all aluminum cans, and I know they are stocked on students on this uh, broadcast, and they may remember us uh, looking for aluminum cans. These are soda beer uh, cans, uh, and there are 320 of them in this. Uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating heating unit that can be used to heat spaces uh, in the winter. Uh, and um, so some of the students who I went with to Zimbabwe uh, worked on this for solar thermal, uh, but our focus was trying to get uh, as many people as we could uh, to start using uh, photovoltaics. Because Zimbabwe, the nice thing about Zimbabwe here in New Jersey uh, in the summer, we get 12, uh, if we're lucky, we get 10 or so hours of sunlight, decent uh, solar radiation uh, for solar panels in Zimbabwe. It's like that all year round. Uh, and so you can, in this house, actually, this whole house, which is bigger than the house I'm talking to you from right now, uh, is all just supported by solar and nothing else. Uh, we, we heat our water with this. Uh, and so some of the things that we also uh, we, we quickly discovered that although we wanted to demonstrate, we wanted to demonstrate specific things when we went to Zimbabwe, right? We had the same donor syndrome uh, or the expert syndrome. Uh, when we went, we just were like, we want them to grow mushrooms. We want them to do well. We want them to be food, uh, we want there to be food security. But it wasn't the most pressing issue. When we went there, there were some very specific issues that we know we could not reach people until we at least helped them with some of the things uh, that were bothering them. Uh, the biggest issue was uh, their kids, they felt like their kids, uh, there was nothing happening in the schools, not because the teachers were bad, but there was just no, there was nothing, there were no books. They were, and if you look at the buildings, uh, it was just really sad. And then the water issues uh, in their neighborhoods, um, uh, we had to help them find ways to find uh, sources of water that are reliable. Uh, and then of course, uh, in rural Zimbabwe right now, alluvial gold panning is a big deal. Uh, in fact, two thirds of adults who are making any living um, were uh, involved in some way in alluvial gold panning. So before we even, uh, went to do any of the project, projects that were really of interest to us, we had to find a way to work with these uh, locals uh, to 
build their capacity to be in a place where an investor will be interested in coming in to work with them. So uh, capacity building was a big deal, uh, showing people how to set up a business, working with local government uh, regulators uh, to make sure that they recognize these as, uh, as viable uh, businesses. Uh, so improving worker safety and then getting donors to or investors to come in uh, as partners in some of these uh, areas. Uh, and of course, we are not experts in this area. So we managed to persuade a colleague who is at Florida, University of Florida, to work with the locals on doing this and that project is flourishing on its own because of uh, their graduate students who just got really uh, interested in just getting these uh, alluvial gold panels organized and into cooperatives and then looking at the environmental impacts and educating people about the impacts of mercury because when you use mercury in amalgamating gold uh, in these rivers you end up uh, with polluted waters so because the school system uh, that came up everywhere we went whether it was teachers politicians and we are in luck in the united states uh, uh, a lot of the books that are used here are also in English. It's a different version of English than British English. So uh, you, you won't believe this, but we spent a year, like a full year, uh, talking, uh, just talking to uh, the Minister of Education, which would be the, uh, uh, like the, uh, the Minister of Education, which would be the equivalent of the Secretary of Education here, trying to get them to accept that if we bring in American books that have American English, which, which spells color with C-O-L-O-R instead of C-O-L-O-U-R, it should be acceptable, right? Because it's the same language, really. But because of grading standards, because of standards, and again, there are dozens of words that are different, even just flashlights and torches, like in Zimbabwe, a flashlight is a torch. Uh, there are so many little things that you never think about until you get there and you start uh, trying to uh, negotiate between the two uh, dialects of the same language, really. So after they accepted that, yeah, they could include these is acceptable, uh, then uh, we got the green light to start collecting books. And in the United States, uh, when books are editions are three to five years old they are being thrown away already or they are seven eight years old uh, and we noticed that in some schools they just dump them so we worked with a lot of school districts to collect these books and this is my colleague patrick Hase, uh, and we stored them on campus some of them we stored off campus because um, for this project uh, in the uh, this is a high school student bringing books to us at the school uh, and this is a storage space on uh, on campus. Uh, we would collect books and ship between thirty and fifty thousand books every few years. So we target about three to four years, uh, and that's when our next shipment. Right now, we're actually getting close to forty thousand. So we'll be raising money soon uh, to uh, get our next shipment. All these uh, this is actually happening during COVID. You see us. We are uh, we have masks. We have so this was early this year uh, and what we do with these books is uh, Stockton students have been amazing and community in general has been amazing they collect the books books phones 
tablets, whatever. And when they are ready, this was three years ago, uh, we shipped them in January. Uh, and then this is us uh, bidding farewell to our book collection that we've been collecting for years. And then these are the books after they have gone through customs in South Africa and been taken to Zimbabwe and on their way to our site in Zimbabwe. We discovered this, is, this was our third shipment. So we've learned a few things along the way. Uh, we discovered that when you send books from here, uh, sometimes or they go through middlemen and then you say, we are working with these 20 schools we want, we're sending 40,000 books, so each school should get 2,000 books. Uh, they'll say, yes, we'll do that. And then you show up in Zimbabwe six months later to see those 2,000 books at each school. And sometimes you'll be lucky to see 200 books. So we decided there's to be a better way to do this. So we actually, I actually also went and built this shed where we'd keep the books. And uh, we would do the distribution ourselves. And the advantage of doing this, by the way, is that now we are experiencing exactly the same things that everyone is experiencing in that house that I showed you earlier, where we would all live. Uh, but we have control over who gets the books and we actually engaged uh, lawyers to sign contracts with if it's a principal, if it's uh, the deputy principal, that we are giving you 1,000 books. And at any time during the next few years, we'll come back to see what's happening with the books. We, want, we just want to be able to say after three years that, yeah, 600 books are still in the library. Here's what happened to the other 300 books. And we can try trace to see what has happened to them. Uh, because we don't want, after engaging so many people to collect books, for someone to be laughing all the way to the bank over a weekend, really, after we have sent them uh, those books. So uh, the other thing that uh, we really like about this location where we are is that um, we are only like 75 minutes from the airport, the international airport in Harare. And this road here, if you, as, as long as you can get out of this, this is right at the house, you can get into a taxi from Zimbabwe and it costs like four bucks to get into the capital Harare. So in about an hour, you'll be in the capital uh, and 20 minutes later, if you really wanted, you could be at the airport. So it makes it really easy. So we are right next uh, to a big highway. And then we have a lot of land and it's really easily accessible. But these are, this is a chicken run. Uh, the, the birds had to be removed because again, remember two weeks ago, those floods, again, see those photos again, this is our garden. These are mushroom sheds. These are all areas that, and again, the basement, the fish pond that we're demonstrating. Uh, so we are being affected by the same. So we don't, they don't just get to tell us, these are photos that came through WhatsApp, through texts like two weeks ago saying, look at what's happening here. Uh, and uh, these are some of the best moments uh, in this project, because you can see there are Stockton faces here. Yeah, yeah, Stockton faces, you see them. These are Stockton students who have gone with us uh, and we distribute to different schools. And <clears throat> there are synergies that come from this. When these kids come to the house and they see what we are doing, and they're not just collecting books. We show them what we're doing with the mushroom sheds, with the garden, with all sorts of activities. And their teachers who are also coming with them. And by the way, they sign uh, out all these books. They're taking them uh, with them. 
Uh, and we have done this and we've distributed, at least in the last six years, close to 70,000 books this way. Uh, but we, so when we engage their teachers, you see uh, in the next few slides um, after these, how now we can go to those same schools and show them a number of different, and demonstrate a number of different projects uh, for, uh, for the school. Uh, uh, yes, I am seeing the questions that you're asking about the floods and other issues. I will get to you uh, in a second. I'll, sh uh, I'll get to that here. Yeah. So, um, one of so the biggest thing that really drew me uh, to go back and work in Zimbabwe was just reading about uh, the the headlines about food sh shortages in Zimbabwe. All these things that I. I I never knew, I never experienced any of that growing up in Zimbabwe and we were not rich because people have always managed to grow food uh, and reap harvest. They were not making a lot of money. These were not cash crops, but they could, they, it was enough for subsistence and then sell a little bit of uh, leftover uh, to get money for tuition or subsistence and all these other things. So it's really just affected me. <clears throat> it affected me a lot that uh, people in rural Zimbabwe were not uh, able to do this. So I actually spent uh, about, a, in about 2014 or so, I spent a year uh, on YouTube University <laughs> trying to figure out, okay, what is the best way that uh, we can uh, grow uh, sustainable foods that don't uh, rely on external factors like temperature and precipitation. And I found that mushroom farming, uh, which was just proliferating in uh, Asia and other places, uh, was one of the most viable projects that uh, one could work on. The problem was I knew nothing about mushrooms. So I spent uh, about eight days uh, as an apprentice uh, on a farm in Ohio, learning how to grow different types of mushrooms. And th those were the uh, eight of some of the most exciting days of my life, but also some of the hardest days of my life because of just what was involved uh, in growing mushrooms. After I figured that out, I had to figure out a way because when you look at some of the shades they use, like this shade that you're looking at on the uh, in the photo, that's about 15, 15 foot by, oops, yeah, 15, foot by 70 feet long. And if you wanted to do this uh, using modern uh, equipment and all these other things, it would cost you about 15 to 18,000 US dollars. And people we are working with don't have that kind of money. So uh, we decided to find ways. So this is thatch, this is eucalyptus uh, pores. And then the one is still you find uh, in the corners here. And so this 15 by 70 feet, uh, you could build this with local materials and you would have, uh, you would spend uh, about 700 US dollars, which many people uh, can't afford. But remember, you can scale down. You don't have to scale. Uh, you don't have to use the same scale. <clears throat> so we worked with the farmers uh, and we showed them ways uh, to propagate and culture uh, mushroom, whether they wanted to buy the inoculum or they wanted to culture it themselves. We worked with them 
and I had two students work with me on this. Yeah, this is what you find inside those sheds. So each of those sheds could have 500 of these bags. They will be staggered. The advantage of doing this, by the way, also is that I don't have to go back to my dean every year begging for money because if we are generating income there, which supports the people who live there, and then we can offset some of the costs of the students who also go and work on these projects in Zimbabwe. But we were producing mushrooms. These are, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking. Uh, these, uh, these mushrooms, we, we, we grew uh, button, but these are not button mushrooms, uh, oyster. These are pink oyster mushrooms and blue oyster mushrooms. Uh, and so the challenge that we had, so we would, so it's really difficult to teach other people to do things that you don't do yourself. So <clears throat> we wanted to make sure that whatever we were teaching them, uh, we were also doing at our own site. So we would show them how we did it at our site and then we would go to them, with them to their own houses and we would work with them so that they would build their own uh, mushroom sheds. And uh, we ran into a problem because uh, a lot of the farmers didn't want everyone in the village to, to, to have a shed because then we're not going to make money <laughs> if everyone is doing mushrooms. And we, we tried really hard to make them understand that if all of us joined heads and then we became a cooperative, we would have a lot more power when we went to sell our product as one rather than small individual farm, uh, farmers uh, selling uh, uh, these as individuals. Uh, for some of them, it was a really tough concept to swallow. They just didn't want, they, they, they didn't want to share, to share this knowledge with other people. Uh, but uh, I think we managed to convince a lot of them because they saw what we were doing and how as a, as a bigger uh, cooperative, we were able to negotiate prices uh, with even some of the local chains uh, that would sell to uh, local supermarkets who would carry this product. And then the last uh, thing that, and the nice thing about mushrooms is they don't, you don't, you just need water and that shed. And that shed because it's, uh, it, uh, the climate there doesn't really change. Uh, it's perfect for growing mushrooms. <coughs> Uh, and the last thing that we did was the garden project. And so again, behind the house, uh, we uh, went to work. And this is me and my partner here in Hamilton working on ways. Uh, we do this in our backyard and we are trying to show how to do hydroponics where nothing, there's no moving water. All we are doing is these are, you can buy these from ShopRite or Walmart uh, and you use paper, you can even use paper or cotton, and you can grow lettuce. Within seven weeks, you have lettuce growing hydroponically in water. There's no moving water here. What we are, all we are doing is this plumbing pipe. We use a drill press to cut these walls. Uh, and then, as you can see here, and then we leave one of them, or we don't leave it open. Well, what we do is every uh, few days during the summer, you come back and you just pour your fertilizer in there, your water and uh, fertilizer and uh, you can have it in any configuration you want. Uh, we've got quite a few students interested in this and you can have it as, as in this format or you can have it with styrofoam floating 
uh, in a bed that also has no moving water whatsoever. And in 42 days, this is our lettuce. We had lettuce, we had kale, we had all sorts of veggies. And so once we perfect that uh, method uh, in, uh, in a lab at Stockton, <coughs> Once we perfect that, then we take it to Zimbabwe because we don't want to spend a whole summer trying something that won't work. We want to make sure that it works here in New Jersey before we go. And then with some of the students, we try the same situation. So it may not be the, same, the exact same configuration, but uh, we use the same plumbing pipe. It's cheaper there, even, it's even cheaper there. And then instead of using, uh, these are all like, two liter gallons either of water, uh, containers of either water, orange juice or other containers. And then, so the pipe is in the ground and then we plant the uh, veggies here. It could be anything that you want that is a, that is, uh, a short growing season. So less than three months usually. And what we do is if you are watering it, you just remove one of these at the end and you add water from there. And this actually saves water. It uses up to 80% less water and you can grow it in any conditions. And if you are able to, so what we're able to demonstrate with some people is if you use uh, wood on these and you have your water in here, so we're using plastic. So it's like a basin that you created with plastic. You can move this around your house and follow the sun. So instead of having your lettuce after, um, uh, seven weeks, you could have it a little earlier, actually. Uh, and so these are some of the projects. And as you can see, these are structural students that are working on these projects uh, with local middle school and high school students. Uh, and uh, these kids, they get so excited about these projects. Uh, and then when we demonstrate them at our house for their parents, uh, the uh, we got quite a few people uh, interested in uh, taking up these uh, uh, projects, or at least trying them uh, in their houses. And then, um, uh, unfortunately, we've been doing this for three years. Uh, we meant to go back last summer, of course. Uh, we all know what happened with COVID. And uh, so I feel, I, I hope we're able to maintain this momentum. Uh, we won't be able to go this summer for sure. So after skipping two seasons, I'm hoping that we'll be able to, to maintain the momentum with mushrooms and uh, the vegetables, but uh, it's, it's tough um, because they're being affected by COVID the same way we are, so they are immobilized. So I'm just going to answer a few of the questions uh, that are on the chat and then uh, you guys can add more. <laughs> Okay, so um, one of the I'm going to scroll back a little bit further. Um, so, Olivia, <coughs> so they have to go to shops to gain electronic power as they don't have access at home. They were just wanting to clarify what you were talking yeah. about about taking literally walking to take your devices. Yes, so they are walking, and the shops are not close by. Sometimes they're walking an hour, um, and. and and just to get and remember when you are charging your phone, these are not, they're not like the fast chargers we have here. Some of them, they would have to go and sit and wait an hour while that phone is being charged and then they walk back. Wow, that's, 
That's a lot of time to do that too. And you're saying too that the cost of it's also. Yeah, and that's why we thought we are not going to get anywhere unless we we get this problem solved. Yeah. Um, someone actually has a question about when you were mentioning about diabetes. Um, Kath asked, I was interested in your comment that diabetes is such an issue there. Is there a lot of sugar in the diet? And you were talking about, you know, bringing sustainability and crops and things. What, you know, what is the food situation and, you know, what's more traditional there and, you know, easy to access? So, you know, it's, it's kind of weird uh, because in Zimbabwe, uh, diabetes is seen as a, as a disease of affluence. You don't necessarily have to be rich, but <clears throat> it's often seen in people who, uh, well, if you follow the diet, no more staple where they're eating a lot of corn and uh, mixed veggies and sometimes meat, and they are doing a lot of work around the house. They are walking long distances. They are working in the field. Um, they don't really, people who are uh, like that generally don't get diabetes, right? It's when people get uh, a job, like if you're a professional, you're a teacher, and you, you come back home after work and you can afford to buy soda, you can buy all sorts of these uh, fancy foods. Uh, that's how, that's when people end up uh, getting diabetes because then they are buying all these other things and then they are a little more sedentary. They are not, our, our diet has always been high in carbs, but we have been offsetting it because we, we work a lot in the field and we walk a lot also. But because uh, being a professional, sometimes you end up being, um, uh, being a little more sedentary. Uh, means that now you end up being prone to that. And also just the ease of transportation to go from place to place. Uh, when I would remember when I was a kid, when we would go to the rural area where that house is, we would walk, whenever we want to go to my uncle's, we would walk forever just to get there. These days, you have a quarter, yeah, you can jump into a combi, we call them combis. Uh, and they're, they're, they're not quite like Uber, uh, but, they, they just, it's more like uh, uh, Uber pools, really. Yeah. Okay, so another question is what you had seen during your presentation. Um, Tanjera says, does the program plan on trying to protect the building from floods like there were the past few weeks in any way possible? I, I really wish we were able to do that because uh, the problem is that we, we don't know anything about floods in Zimbabwe. Uh, like this is the first time that I've actually seen flooding uh, in that area, and um, and the one thing that I didn't that I failed to mention was that a lot of the uh, places like that house is not insured. So although I spent easily uh, upwards of fifty thousand uh, dollars putting that house together, uh, it's not insured. It's in a rural area. Uh, there's no, if I went to town to try to get an insurance policy on it, people will be, uh, will be, uh, they'll be wondering why, why, what it is I'm trying to do. Uh, and this is the biggest problem, right? For me, at least I can afford, I can say, well, if there's more, if there's whatever, I can go and rebuild. But if, what if I have spent my whole life uh, investing to build that house? Uh, and this is what happens with people, a lot of Zimbabweans in the diaspora, they go to the UK uh, and they spend three, 
to 10 years working really hard, sending money home to build a house like that. And then they come back home and they think, oh, I'm set now. At least I don't have to worry about uh, a place to live. I can just worry about what to eat and all these other things. And then you get a flood that just destroys everything and you're pretty much done. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's not something that we grew up with and it's not something that we plan for. Even I didn't plan for it. And I teach environmental science here. <laughs> yeah. So someone also has another question following up about, you know, the flooding with no moving water. How does the water not get stagnant? Are there any issues like that, that you have to worry about, like water quality, you know, that we do like here in New Jersey, if something sits too long? Uh, with no moving, uh, uh, what, was, what were they referring to? I'm sorry, I missed that part. Yeah, Allie, can you give us a little bit more information in the chat and then we'll come back. Um, Amir has an interesting and fun question. How do you keep squirrels and other animals away from your crop in your backyard there? Oh, here in, uh, oh God, in New Jersey, this is, this is fun. With, with COVID, uh, it's been uh, interesting because we are, we are both here, my wife and I are both here. And I, I, I was just telling my nephews the other day that uh, uh, the only way to love uh, wildlife these little critters is if you don't have um, uh, uh, food that they love. Uh, we used to enjoy like watching blue jays in our backyard, uh, cardinals, all these little birds. But these days when we have our blueberries, our strawberries, all these are like, oh my God, those birds are back again. And with squirrels, uh, you saw that with the, uh, with the plumbing pipe that we use, we raise it enough to where uh, the squirrels won't reach. Uh, uh, but with um, other plants, um, we are at their mercy, really. We are at their mercy. In fact, we had a, a whole thing of cauliflower just vanish overnight one time. Um, I'm in central New Jersey and we have deer and they are very aggressive and I've learned, you know, yeah. what kinds of crops they are less likely to eat, how to, you know, keep them away, so. Yeah, That's pretty much and, and, and and this summer we actually trapped two bunnies uh, and transported them somewhere else. And my wife was depressed about that for a month. Uh, and we agreed afterwards that we are not going to trap and uh, move bunnies <laughs> away anymore. So we are just we are trying this next summer to try to find other ways to protect our backyard also. So. so um, Allie wrote back, her question was about the hydroponics, the pipes with no moving water, does it get oh, stagnant? So how does the hydroponics work? Are there concerns that might be different in Zimbabwe than here, considering, you know, climate's different? Are there any challenges yeah. in the hydroponics system? So when we were doing research on this, uh, everyone kept saying, you cannot have it sit uh, there for uh, that long without getting all these other problems. But knowing just how fast these plants, especially lettuce. I know about lettuce and kale, just how, how fast they grow and how much water they are using. Um, there's no issue with stagnation. The only problem that we had with stagnation, actually, uh, and my wife can attest to this, uh, is just mosquitoes. Uh, we were attracting mosquitoes left, center, and right, and it's an issue that we have to deal with uh, this summer because I don't think uh, it's sustainable, and especially where those pipes were. In fact, now we have a little greenhouse where we want to put everything. 
because of uh, mosquitoes. Uh, but in terms of stagnation, the water is used up within a week. Uh, we are replenishing it. We are replenishing it twice, really, uh, and uh, we didn't have any uh, real issues. And I've talked to a lot of crop scientists who say, "Don't do this; it won't work." Uh, but we tried it. I just figured, what do I have to lose? Let me try it in the arts and science building. We tried it; it worked, and we tried it here in Hamilton, and it works. <clears throat> okay, so there's actually two questions regarding water. So I'll do the first one, which is, um, Taylor said, you mentioned water being an issue there. How far do some people have to travel to get clean water? So there are some, uh, and they, when you say people, usually it's just girls, really. And a lot of them will end up missing school because on the day that they're going to go get water, they may be walking uh, an hour and a half each way just to get water, and it's not necessarily clean water also, that's the other problem. And so there are projects right now. Uh, in fact, when we were working on all these, um, I, I went to meet with one of the politicians at a hotel in Arari, and we were talking about it, and um, we, uh, other people who were sitting close to us overhead us talking about this, and they were involved in international development, and they, were interested uh, in, uh, they were trying to get a project going on water uh, security. And we ended up uh, working with them in our area and it was just by sheer coincidence uh, that uh, they said, yeah, we would like to try out a few different things and who, their project was really on just solar pumps and they were also going against non-convention where people want to sink these really deep wells uh, with expensive pumps uh, to get water to the top. But the, for them, they wanted shallow wells uh, that they drill in and then use small uh, solar panels uh, and smaller uh, pumps, solar pumps that would just start working as soon as the sun is up, as soon as you get to a certain voltage and they would pump water into a reservoir uh, until it, uh, it was ready. And then you, that water will be clean and it will be in a closed reservoir that can be used uh, all day. So those uh, those guys are working on that project, uh, hopefully this summer, and we'll see whether it improves uh, the time. Uh, it makes life a little easier for the girls who have to walk long distances, but it's not unusual to walk one and a half hours each way. And then wait in line once you get to the well to get the water and then walk back. So I fact, think you, oh, sorry. No, I, have photos, I have photos of Stockton students uh, holding those pails. They wanted to see if they could, and they would not walk more than uh, 20 feet with those pails of water on their heads. So I think you've answered, you know, following up on what you were talking about, Kyle was asking about um, water pollution, clean water, and, you know, water security, which you just mentioned, and hopefully that project that you just mentioned will be able to move forward. Yeah, and it will be nice if, uh, for example, right now, remember the the uh, mining issue. For me, the reason the mining, the alluvial gold panning, uh, it was so important was that it pollutes, it releases both mercury and cyanide in surface waters. And sometimes when people are desperate, they would get river water close to their homes. And that's the worst type of water you can ever get because although the mercury won't kill you immediately, it has significant neurological uh, impacts on you. And uh, if you 
uh, and it could affect pretty much it would just affect the uh, just your your uh, especially for women it could rob of your child's full potential their whole life really because of its neurological uh, impacts. Okay, I think this is a perfect segue. You know, you are doing a talk at a library right now with a bunch of other libraries. People, um, the only Ellie wants to know, are you still collecting books for the kids with the Zimbabwe Book Project? Yes, we are always collecting our books and uh, you can find us um, uh, at www.zimbabwebookproject.weebly.com. Uh, but my information is also posted on the uh, on the uh, with this talk, and you can email me. We'll be more than happy to come and collect uh, those books from you. That's how we have been collecting so many books because of people who hear about this project and they engage their families and will engage their families. And uh, it's been the uh, it's been amazing. Yes, thank you. Someone posted it. Yeah. 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 yeah um, I can say this too. There's a lot of libraries who haven't been able to do book sales or we have books that are not necessarily sellable. So if some other libraries might be listening, we might be able to help you and, you know, help promote this project as well. That would be great. Um, I'm trying to see. Um, so Diana's also having mercury poisoning and water issues, according to Kath. This is not a, uh, a new thing. This is an issue that comes in many different communities. So, so I think, um, oh, uh, Brooke was asking, do you accept textbooks as well? Do you have a list of what you do and do not accept on that website? Yes. And it shows you the only two book, the only two types of books we don't accept is uh, religious books because politicians think uh, they don't want us to come and start spreading a new religion and any political books because they don't want us to, they think we are up to changing uh, the regime. So they don't want regime change or converting people to a religion they don't want. So those are the two types of books they will not, uh, we will not accept. Uh, the other books we will not accept are books in languages other than English. So. Okay, I think that is our, let's see. Um, someone had a suggestion, you know, different suggestions about different types of growing mediums, and you can totally look at those later, Tate, and we can... Formations, sure. okay. Yeah, the formations. Um, yeah, um, yeah, as Kath said, it was a straw bale, thatch bale gardening. I don't oh, know okay. it, but... Yeah. So, okay, if there aren't any last questions, I want to tell people about the next program, which actually um, it is one of Tate's colleagues. And um, the next lecture, which is the final one in the series, is Thursday, March 11th at 7 p.m. And it's with Dr. Maritza Jaureji. And it's about uh, disparate environmental impacts, causes, and solutions to environmental injustice, and specifically environmental justice in New Jersey. This is a topic, this is why we're talking about these kinds of things with the American Library Association's Resilient Communities um, Libraries Respond to Climate Change, which funded this program. So um, definitely be interested. Tate actually recommended her. So I think it's going to be a great program. If you want to reserve your tickets, you can go to ebpl.org forward slash ops and green. So thank you all for coming. Tate, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and sharing about this project. Hopefully the Zimbabwe Book Project will get some new donations. We'll be able to help support that as well. And maybe some interest too about um, all the sustainability projects since we have so many great resources 
in our community that people might be inspired to, you know, give advice, feedback, and, you know, maybe even invest. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion. Okay. So thank you, everyone. Um, you can check out the website, as I said, ebpl.org forward slash option green. And I actually want to thank our community partners, um, the Friends of the East Brunswick Environmental Commission. We've been doing the Option Green series with them for three or four years now. And the other libraries are the Highland Park Public Library, Madawan Aberdeen Public Library, New Brunswick Free Public Library, North Brunswick Public Library. You can see the Brunswick theme here with me, right? <laughs> Old Bridge Public Library. Plainsboro Public Library, who's actually in the chat. Thank you guys for coming. And the South Brunswick Public Library. So again, thank you so much for coming. Be safe and be well. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org.